Welcome back to another episode of Talent Talks, the success series in partnership with The Business Post. As always, joined by my co-host, Ruth Linden. Today, we have an amazing guest for you all. Anya Kerr from Kinzen is co-founder, CEO of Kinzen, a regular on broadcast media, a fellow of Columbia University's Salzburger Leadership Program and an award-winning journalist. Anya was named in the 100 Women Changing Ireland in 2021 by the Irish Examiner. And in 2018, she was named Woman of the Year by Irish Tatler magazine. What a guest. Phenomenal. Lovely. So inspirational. So talented. And as always, and a common theme with a lot of our entrepreneurs that join us and, and, you know, leaders that join us, it looked a really interesting career pathway as well that led her to where she is today. So this is a lady who's in second startup now at Kins and having come through Storyful with Mark Little, you know, really interesting to learn about, you know, the lessons she's learned that it retaining talent, it's all about the people. I love how she talks about, as she calls it, unsexy plumbing. So you're <laughs> going to have to keep listening to hear what that's about. And overall, just such an amazing voice for female entrepreneurs and leaders totally agree that's enough from us i think for now over to the podcast a question which we kick off all of our podcast episodes with is what does success look like to you Anya? oh it's a great question um i suppose the older i get and the more experience i have i often come back to this sense of higher purpose you know that you have to feel that you are making an impact in the world around you every day. And I can't say that this was all pre-designed. You know, I think back to my 15-year-old self trying to figure out, do I do teaching or journalism? And then I realized it's not a binary choice, do both. But all of these years later, there is a thread line from being a teacher, going into journalism, storyful, Facebook, now second time entrepreneur, which has doing things in the world around you to help people better understand the world. So if you are a teacher, you're constantly trying to give kids information so they can turn information into knowledge because that is power. You know, if you can make informed uh, decisions about the world around you, equally that's what a journalist does every day. You are trying to gather facts, verify what is truthful, what is trustworthy, share it with the world around you so that people can go to a ballot box they can make a decision on a vaccine, um, that they can make informed decisions day to day. And now with Kinzen, it ultimately comes back to that. So I suppose I am someone who believes in the importance of quality news and information, the ability of that to help people make informed decisions. It's importance in our democracies, be it in your education systems, right up to your businesses. And that if you have that, you can have trust. And I suppose trust is something I come back to every day when I think about higher purpose. How will I play my part today to build trust in quality news and information, trust in the world around me? And I think if you're doing that, so if I know that is my higher purpose, well, then every day I have to go to work or a spare room here in Drumcondra and think about how am I going to empower people around me so that they live their purpose, but can ultimately connect their sense of purpose back to mine. And that means every day you have to think about, uh, like I call it my inner signal, and it's probably just intuition, but through the years having to think about how do I play to my strengths? How do I live my values? How do I have an impact in the world? How do I do things that reflect my interests? And if you're getting those four things right, that should be giving you this inner signal, this inner intuition which is ultimately your sense of purpose 
And that's what it comes back to every day. That that it's it's less what does success look like to answer your question and more what does it feel like? What does it feel like when you're in your flow and you know you're doing something that matters? So long-winded uh, answer, but hopefully I got there in the end. <laughs> very noble and very inspiring. And like what's interesting, and I think Ed, you might agree, you know, we talk to very successful entrepreneurs and, and leaders and business people, and it's rare that money or financials are ever mentioned mm. in the response to that question, if ever. Now, yeah. you know, so it, it, like it's an interesting one. It's an interesting trend we're definitely yeah, seeing as well. Because I think particularly our generation, I think a lot more now about, what does it mean to be happy in work and happy at work? And if you're really being honest about that, then you have to think all the time. Like I say to people on, on my team sometimes, think less about what job that you want in life and more what life do you want? Because if you're holding yourself accountable to that, then you can actually bring your authentic self to work. You can bring that sense of purpose, that sense of legacy to work all the time. Because when I talk about purpose, I know my purpose looks different to 49 other people on my team now so for some people their purpose is going to be I want to go to work bookend my day start at nine finish at half five I want to go on two holidays this year I want to pay the mortgage I want to pay the rent that is their purpose is to have a level of comfort safety security there are other people on my team and I know purpose for them is more a sense of belonging belonging uh, to a team to a culture and being a part of that for other people their purpose is they want to become specialists. They want to become experts in their field. Other people want to be the generalists. They want to lead the people who are the, the masters, the specialists. And the generalists just want to bring them all together, be the harmonizers, clarifiers. And then you've the, the people at the tip, you know, of your of, of your sphere. And for them, it is more that self-actualization of how do I do something every day that makes me feel like I'm playing my part, and particularly for us in Kinsen, which is, Information crisis mm -hmm. in the midst of a pandemic, a war in Ukraine. What am I doing? And like not to get a little bit soppy about it, but like, how will I answer that question when my kids in decades are going through the history books and going, well, what did you do in that moment? Like, I have an answer to that question for a four year old daughter. How did I play my part? I think I have a pretty good answer now. And an amazing answer. I am screwed. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I don't have one of those, but it is like it is phenomenal. The journey, like from teacher to journalist to political correspondent, obviously into the startup space with Storyful and Mark Little, then to the big, big giant that is Facebook in New York and, and then back to Ireland. But for and into Kinzen, um, for those though who maybe aren't familiar with Kinzen and you touched on it then, can you just give us a brief overview? What does Kinzen do? <laughs> So, yes, after that squiggly career, uh, yeah, so four and a half years ago, came back uh, to do a second startup, Kinzen. And really, our, our guiding mission every day is to do work that protects the world's public conversations from information risks. So we use this blend of human skills, so still fact checkers, researchers, journalists, world over, on the ground, matched to artificial intelligence, scalable tech, that ultimately is helping content moderators, trust and safety uh, professionals inside the world's biggest platforms, helping them detect and disrupt misinformation, disinformation, hate speech, the stuff that can do real world harm every day. So our technology is ultimately helping those inside the platforms get ahead of emerging threats. It's helping them detect policy violations, ultimately and hopefully helping them get faster, but also take proportionate action. So if you're sitting inside a platform today working with Kinzen, you're hopefully getting ahead of known problems and then getting to see 
how severe is that problem? Is it a risk five or a risk one? Am I going to remove that piece of content or am I just going to downrank it in our uh, algorithms? So we recognized, and obviously when you look at that thread line, like I think back to the early days of Storyful, as much as we spent a lot of time verifying content to be real and trustworthy, Back in 2010, 2011, we had what you call the daily debunk because we could see we need to spend as much time proving stuff to be false, fake, misinformation, disinformation as we were. And that goes back to 2010. So this is years before 2016 election and what you're starting to see play out in places like India or, or be it Texas or Myanmar, Philippines and beyond. And so we are dealing with this wicked problem now today uh, of fake news and this yeah. information crisis. And it probably took, unfortunately, a global pandemic for people to realize the full extent of this infodemic that we have, where people are today struggling. What do I trust? What is real? What, what is knowable to me? And that's where, where Kinzen comes in every day, is trying to help people in those conversations, in that murkiness online, um, to kind of help the platforms get ahead of those problems. So for us through four and a half years in Kinzen, we have realized that automation, if you only had technology, that is not going to help you with the nuance of constantly evolving. Like hour to hour, the narratives are changing, the dog whistles, the hashtags, the memes. So if you only have automation, it's not going to solve for the nuance. But if you only have humans, you can't scale it. So we've been trying to look at this wicked problem, but look at how do you get a blend between tech and human? And we've ended up with this human in the loop solution. Very interesting. In terms of the journalism in 2010, 2011 being very different to, to now, um, and you also mentioned, you know, there's a, a truth to what journalism should be where people can have almost a non-biased view of, of, of what's going on in the world. Journalism nowadays with you know clickbait and and various different news sources in inverted commas, mm. is journalism as much a risk as it is a, a place of truth? Yeah, well, we have a problem in trust now. Trust in mm. institutions, trust in experts, trust in uh, political establishments globally. And as an extension of that, a, a, a massive problem with trust in media. And you can track that back to the fact that we think about the, the birth of platforms and technology. Now, I still believe in the power of technology and platforms to do good. I still think we are more informed as a society because we are more connected globally. But there, of course, have been actors for propaganda reasons, sometimes financial reasons, sometimes for psychological reasons, where people have decided to use those platforms to spew confusion and misinformation and disinformation. And as a consequence of everybody becoming a publisher, we can all pick up our smartphones today post an image, post a video, post a piece of text. We are all now publishers. We now have multiple devices. We're on our iPads, we're on our desktops, we're on our laptops, multiple devices and multiple types of platforms from the dark web right up to your messengers, to your WhatsApp groups, to your public platforms, to your Reddits where you can have you know lots of, of conversations and threads. So we have a multitude of places where we can have conversations. Everyone's a publisher. And what you just have is noise. And in that noise, where you just have streams and streams of content, people have found it hard to find the signal in the noise. And the question then becomes, well, what is the responsibility of platforms to make sure they're amplifying quality news and information and mitigating the bad? And how do we all play our part in 
supporting trustworthy journalism. And so we're at this moment where, yeah, we have to teach our, our kids news literacy skills so they know to reach out to trustworthy newspapers and broadcasters. There's a responsibility on the tech platforms to support them, amplifying the best. Yeah. But then when I look to a, 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 an industry that I love and adore and respect, and I still want to play my part now for the journalism industry, we have to look at the model that's underpinning it. And you're starting to see more newspapers globally, be it the Irish Times, Irish Independent, move into subscription models here. Or you look to the, the Guardian where you're looking for donations and for people to pay it back. Um, or you're looking for looking at other crowdsourcing models. There's any amount of business models now underpinning um, the journalism industry. My fear, however, in all of that is going to be if everybody is going to be required, which is right, we have to pay for quality news and information. But if there is a bigger requirement all the time to pay for it, what is going to be left for those who can't afford to pay? And that's where then we have a responsibility to make sure you still have free public service driven journalism like your RTEs, like your BBCs, like your NPRs. Because if you don't support that and your BBCs and your Channel 4s, what is left mm. for people who don't have a percent propensity to pay is the clickbait, is the nonsense, is the yeah. misinformation, dis disinformation. And when we know what happens, when that is what people are left to consume, that is where, unfortunately, fear and vulnerabilities thrive. And we see people being used who end up being a little bit more vulnerable than those who do have access to the quality, factual, newsworthy, trustworthy news and information. So, yeah, we are at this moment. Do I still believe that, that newspapers and broadcasting can thrive? Yes. Do I worry about the model that's going to under, under, underpin it? Yes. Interesting. Interesting. So, obviously, we were both at the, the Tech Summit in, in Dublin uh, a few weeks ago, which was fantastic. And, you know, one of the keynote speakers was obviously the, the whistleblower from Cambridge Analytica. Mm. When you cast back, obviously, to, to story full, full days and... I think at the time maybe you were exiting that business was when, you know, Brexit was happening. Obviously, there was uh, Trump moving into power and everything that unfolded over those those few years. Did all of that play a part, I suppose, in, in setting up Kinzen and, and, you know, trying to get to the truth of, of, of news and is how much of a part of that was actually part of the Kinzen story? Yeah, like ultimately in Storyful, we have become the the trusted brokers between people on the ground with their smartphones who were taking, whether it was the war in Syria, the Arab Spring or Boston bombings. Like you think of all of these tragic, iconic moments were often captured by an eyewitness. And so Storyful became the world leaders for finding that content, verifying it, working with the rights owner and then distributing it to the world's media. And that ultimately came back to these questions of trust and verification um, and bringing people's content from the margins to the mainstream. I left Storyful after five years. I only ever applied for one job uh, in the five years, and that was Facebook, because I felt if ever I'm going to leave Storyful, it's going to have to be something massively outside my comfort zone that is going to have to massively answer this sense of higher purpose. And so I left Dublin for New York for almost two years because I felt if ever you could go inside a company and try to do good for the industry I love, well, Facebook is the place to do it. Biggest audience in the world, big budgets, and uh, you could do your part when it comes to journalism tools, um, building audiences, thinking about the holistic suite from news literacy right up to the amplification of quality news and information. And after two years, and I learned so much in Facebook, 
brilliant opportunities to create Facebook journalism project and use integrity initiative. I always had this question with Mark. So Mark went to Twitter, I went to Facebook, and we'd always said, if we had the right idea and could answer the question, not can we do it, but should we do it? Mm. And if we had an honest answer to that question, that we would take another leap of faith, that we would answer the questions of, well, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And what's the worst that can happen? (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, four and a half years ago, with that premise of how do we play our part in this information crisis where trust remains one of the biggest issues that we care about, where it is fundamental to our thriving democracies, the generations coming behind us, how do we play our part? And I think the second one for me, having worked in a company like Facebook with, what, 30,000 people, I just had a real burning itch (laughs) to come back and be in control of your, your culture and your values and building the team, gathering the people who would build the product, but ultimately execute on that purpose and higher sense of vision and purpose. So, and also I think coming back to Dublin four and a half years ago, you're very proud. Like I've traveled the world. I have, I have no desire to live in a permanent state of jet lag ever again, like I did the years with Facebook <laughs> and Storyful. But that powers this sense of wanting to come back to your home country to create jobs, to play your part here. Because I genuinely do believe Dublin, Ireland has so much to offer when it comes to a technology hub that is innovative, that is creative, that is job creating, that is best in class at the moment. Now, there's a question of whether we market that very well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I did want to come back and build something from the ground up again and start with just a whiteboard and reset. And what does it look like to start again? And we've asked and answered. We haven't always got the answers right, but we certainly asked and answered hard questions. And I love how you've been quoted as likening this second startup to that difficult second album. Like it's so true. But having coming back, you know, and it's the second time round, Mm. did you find it easier or did you nearly feel there's more pressure and more at stake now? Yeah, like I think when you're doing it the second time around and I probably only realize this every day is that you do have a resilience built up. You have a muscle memory after five years of Storyful sitting here in Kinsen today of trying to avoid the same mistakes and so you see it yeah I probably this time around you can be more intentional about how you engage people how you build a meaningful experience because all the research shows if you can get people to connect to that sense of purpose they're going to be more engaged and you can retain them and I'm sure you guys look at research like that all the time so I've thought about a lot from the get-go that engagement that experience piece and um, so that because what I learned in Storyful was probably we didn't have a good enough plan, I think. And this is, was on me for retaining our talent. And when we got acquired, it was an ambush overnight. And we were I, I was a bit flat footed of how do you retain and keep your best talent in a moment like that? So that's been one is just people, people, people. I would okay. say second time around <laughs> has been. um building the processes from the get-go you know I think when you're in a scrappy startup mentality you want to be agile and fast and flexible and constantly learning and having that feedback loop but it is only as good as wrapping a good process around it so I often think about coming to work every day there are much there are 49 people in the company smarter than me now and that's the right way my job is to wrap a process and structure and system around them I kind of call it the unsexy plumbing but because (laughs) I (laughs) that I have done this unsexy plumbing from day one 
I think we are as good as we are and we still make mistakes and, and have a lot to work on. But so number two is the unsexy plumbing, I would say, from day one, getting the boring stuff right. And the, the third one, I guess, is, and I think probably all startups and businesses um, struggle with this, but at least I think there's been an awareness of it, of how do you lob the ball and go, that's where we're headed, right? So you have this long-term ambitious vision for your company and stay stubborn on that and ultimately flexible about how you get there. And so you're having to kind of operate in these two modes of stubbornness about the long-term and yet day-to-day committed Mm. radical focus to the task, just do the work. And we haven't gotten it right all the time, but at least we've had an awareness, I think, increasingly of those two modes. So I would say, yeah, coming back a second time around, you definitely have the resilience, the muscle memory, and you have this, you know, Glennon Doyle talks all the time about, I can do hard things. And that's the thing with second time around. Your pain threshold is higher <laughs> and you find yourself going, I can do harder things. <laughs> and you, you keep pushing, you know, Scott Belsky has this great, great line about startups, that it's a recommitment to suffering every day. And, and there's some truth in that. Absolutely. You have to recommit every day to hard things. <laughs> But, you know, I've been here before. I got through it with Storyful. And I often say to Mark, I'm going to work the process. I'm going to trust the process. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm I'm, I'm blindfolded. Um, but I'm constantly coming back every day to what can I control? What can I influence? What can I accept? And just trying to kind of find a pathway with all of its pivots and mistakes. But trust on, yeah, I love the ball. That's still where I'm heading. Trust the process is something that we say every single day in our business. So, it's going to be ex-epitaph, um, very solid. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, it's interesting you're talking about retention uh, as your number yeah. one. Um, and obviously that's a big focus in uh, in Kinzen. Um, do you put a lot of that retention and engagement down to, as you say, lobbing the ball and showing them where the vision is? Do they need to know where, where they're heading at all times? Is that the North Star? Yeah, like we do our Gallup Q12 every quarter to kind of just make sure we're taking the pulse of a company. We're still small. We're, we're 50 people, 25 full-timers, about 25 part-timers around the world. We are a remote first company. You know, two years ago, we were based in Marion Square. Now we're remote first. We're working in 15 languages globally. We're going to go to 25 languages by year end. So you've got people from diverse cultures and backgrounds uh, very proud of the fact that we are 50-50 men and women. So we've got a nice uh, gender balance. But because you have those pressures of being remote first across 15 different languages and time zones, I do think you have to work extra hard on your internal communications, getting that tension between this is our winning strategy, but this is these are our smart goals. And so you're always looking at that short to medium to long term. And so to to your question, I think, is reminding people all the time of your impact in the world around you. And they see that day to day in terms of working with platforms and knowing the impact that we're having so that you're articulating all the time the sense of why, like why me in this company? Why this product? Why now? Why does the world need this now? And I think if you can constantly come back and be absolutely clear about your whys, well, then the house will follow. Now, that does mean sometimes you have to come back and go, do we still understand the problem we're solving? Are we still in love and obsessed with that problem? Because I think that's the starting point. I can see where sometimes other companies have to pull themselves back is that they've forgotten that why 
and they have forgotten sometimes the problem that they fell in love with and maybe it needs a little bit of tweaking and I think if you keep coming back to that and then give people a sense of playing to their strengths uh you know having a sense of progress then over time um but that they can all the time connect it back to that purpose um, look, you're going to, you know, I think where you, you where it's harder at the moment in retention and you're looking at these pulse surveys is questions like, you know, around uh, a best friend at work and, um, you know, that, that you have this social connection. I think that's really, really hard at the moment. I'm sure you guys have yeah. lots of theories yeah. on that. But we probably struggle there like any company right now where you're making it up as you go along in terms of getting the blend that if you're going to bring people into the office once a week, it should be intentional. It should be around creative, collaborative, open communications that you're being thoughtful about it, as opposed to a three three day week where you must be in the office just because. And I think we're all figuring that out. And I would like to think at least by serving all the time, we do little mini pulses. At least we're asking the questions transparently, taking the feedback, but listening. You know, I talk all about in the company you have to listen, ask, validate, and then ask again. Yeah. And I think if you do lead with empathy right now on this retention question and lead by listening, um, you're going to be further along by those who are just coming with mandatory pronouncements on be in the office three days a week uh, and deal with the commute, not our problem. Out of curiosity, were you remote first prior to COVID? No, we were a five day a week in the office, kind of nine, nine to five and everybody dealing with a commute in and out. And I can honestly say, you know, we're what, two and a half years in. When I compare even personally my life pre pandemic to now, the one feeling I do not feel anymore as a mother and a businesswoman and a million other things to other people is the sense of guilt. Because mm. when I was in an office five days a week, I used to feel guilty about the crash collection, the crash drop-off time. And then when I was at home, I felt guilty about, oh, just left the team in the office and the perception of that. And now because we are, there is parity in that we are remote first. Now, if you want to go to the office five days a week, we have provision for that. But there is parity and equality in saying we are a remote first company, a family first company, and we are going to make this optional if you want to come into the office. And there is something incredibly powerful when you see men and women coming on the stand-downs or the stand-ups or the all-hands with their ki kids on laps because that is your reality. You are living your most authentic life. And I think we have become a much more honest, transparent company where I used to think it was a little bit BS, you know, this Facebook phrase of bring your most authentic self to work. Well, it feels at least a little bit truer now in a post-pandemic world. And so, yeah, we, we've had to iterate on what does that now look like in future now that we can choose it as opposed to it being enforced upon it, upon us. And what does that mean now for your recruitment, your retention, your internal comms? And but still finding that sense of connection by doing offsites and bringing people into the office. And I think everybody's still trying to figure out that perfect sweet spot blend still. Yeah. yeah, it's the culture piece. It's having it not yeah. impact on the culture. And we're, we're mm. all still figuring that one out, I think, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, the big thing for, for us as a, a similar sized business. Yeah. It's how do you mm. create a culture, but do it from uh, a distance at times, you know, and and mm. I think 
it may be slightly easier for businesses that have a very clearly defined culture that's been instilled for a number of years um yeah. for for um for scrappy startups as as you say <laughs> it's it's a little bit more yeah. difficult to do that um yeah, yeah do you have a starting assumption though i i have a thesis that if you're going to be remote first and teach culture you still have to bring that new recruit to Dublin, have an immersive experience, have a week of onboarding, hear the founder's story, sit and see people working, sitting over their shoulders that you're still going to learn by doing and seeing, and then go back to your respective yeah. country, but that you have to come in the first instance to have that chemistry check, uh, to understand the energy, to hear the stories told in the room, and then go remote. And that that's uh, one I'm going to be trying to test in the months to come, that you're still mm. going to need that first in-person experience before you can go yeah. remote. Okay. And a huge number of our clients would do that. They would have mm. at least, you know, two, three weeks. I mean, there's some, uh, you know, some yeah. clients comes to mind even for the first couple of months. But I think you're right. I think so much of a, an opinion and an impression is made in that those first couple of yeah. weeks. It's invaluable. Anya, you mentioned previously and stated previously that COVID was the the making of of Kinzen as a as a business, and I know there's big ambitions to triple revenues in in 2022. You know, was was COVID the underlying reason as to or the rationale behind this this growth plan, or or what what's underpinning that? Yeah, like. I think probably like all good startups, we had a pivot in there in the middle. Like, I think the the mission, the vision, the sense of purpose Mark and I had four and a half years ago when we started Kinzen is still there today, you know, of how do we play our part to amplify quality news and information and mitigate the bad? How do you do work that protects public conversations from information risk? So all of those starting pieces are there. But before the pandemic, months before it, we had had the realization that that technology that we were building there for a B2C, where we were trying to build this customized, personalized news experience, we'd use that tech also, and we were working B2B with publishers. We had a right realization before the pandemic, you could take the same technology over here to solve for misinformation, disinformation, hate speech. It was going to be just different applications of it and different types of partners. So we've been doing that for months before the pandemic hit, pandemic happens, and then you realize we are now living in the midst of global pandemic, global infodemic. And obviously overnight, there was a greater need for our help when it came to just COVID, conspiracy theories, misinformation, and then you get into the world of vaccines. And now we live in a world today where you have a war in Ukraine and um, information just spreading so quickly across countries and continents and languages in minutes and hours. So there's never been, I would say, a greater need. Mm. Um, the platforms themselves are in an unprecedented moment. I would say that particularly in the last few months with Ukraine, up until that moment, they probably had, OK, we've a playbook now for pandemics. We've a playbook for terrorist events. We have a playbook for, you know, breaking news events. They didn't have a playbook for Ukraine. And so we're probably finding ourselves in this moment with the platforms of it's unprecedented. Everybody is is learning as we go. But we're now going to have a playbook for how to do this again. So I think, yeah, for Kinzen, we have been the right company in the right moment with the right background. You know, I think yeah. for Mark and I, when you go back to Storyful's beginnings and the purpose that drove us there, 
what we both did inside Facebook and Twitter, even I go back to, you know, teaching and journalism, it almost feels inevitable, even though we didn't design it this way, but it almost feels inevitable that this is where we should be today. This is the work that we should be doing. And that's a nice feeling to know, you know, I don't sit here four and a half years into a startup going, oh yeah, it's been this hockey stick growth. It wasn't. We have had your classic messy middle, you know, all of the jig jags, the holy shit, the <laughs> oh wow moments like we've been through it all and you know and I'm always going to keep myself honest on that that you know we had that pivot in there in the middle but we've learned from it we've built even more resilience anyone who's who decides to do a startup this is not an easy choice because every day you have to go plan a is this but plan b c d e and beyond and you can't I'm lucky I have a co-founder marks so we can hold each other accountable and ask each other hard questions like, well, what's the worst that can happen? And are we comfortable with that? And the days where we're not, we have to dial it back a little bit. But you constantly do have to ask that question of, yeah, what is the worst that can happen here? And plow on because you have a stubbornness about that impact and purpose that you're chasing. But it hasn't been, you know, and I think anyone who comes in your podcast and tells you it's been this beautiful, we started here and we've landed out here and that's been <laughs> successful are skipping a few hardship chapters in there in the middle, yeah. That's for sure. Plenty of chapters, <laughs> I think. Is, is, look, luckily, uh, Ruth usually starts at the worst-case scenario and I'm at the best-case scenario, and we drag each other to Dude, the middle. See, this yeah. is the yin-yang, and that's yeah. what you need. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, I can yeah. see what, what, for Mark and I, second time around, Mark is this amazing futuristic thinker. You know, he's always thinking about five years hence, and I'm always trying to translate that to go right, well, this is the roadmap. How are we going to execute? What does the doing of that look like? And so you need that yin-yang that you guys have. And that's, that's when it works. Yeah. Would you do it again by yourself? So I'm just going to jump in there. <laughs> <laughs> this exact startup or another startup? In general, uh, a startup. Like, um, I know my answer to that question, but. Oh, I like, I joke to my family and friends all the time saying, if I come with an idea for another startup, you were to remind me of the <laughs> Of, of the lower <laughs> moments and go, you crazy lady, absolutely not. Yeah. And yet, and yet, when, when you have those days in your flow, and I take such pride in the fact that I've managed to hire the smartest, most thoughtful, kind, compassionate, well-meaning team of people. And that I, all I've done is try to bring them together and now make sure that the sense of their roles and responsibilities and that sense of purpose and that's brilliant. And the days when you get to hire somebody and do a promotion, that alone makes it worth it. And it's like it's like having a baby where you suppress <laughs> the pain and the hardship <laughs> of what you have to go to bring them into the world because then you just fall hopelessly in love with them. It's the same a little bit with startups. You kind of forget mm. sometimes the pain and the, the irritations and the constant sense of ambiguity. Like I think that's what's hard about startup life is you have to recommit every day to the different shades of grey. And yeah. some days feel a little bit lighter than others. But God, the days where it shines through, it, it's yeah. brilliant. That you get that deal, you make that hire, you post somebody from that rival. Like those are the days where it's all worthwhile. So I guess, I suppose, I am saying, oh, yeah, you do go <laughs> again. Um, with, yes, cash is king with lots and lots Talked of money yourself in into the bank. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We will yeah, remind you, you of this, Sonia. We will remind you <laughs> yeah. of this day if ever okay, you go again. Yeah, here, we, here we go again. <laughs> here we go again. Anya, just to, I suppose, cast back to, to Storyful, 
you know, at the time was such big news given the fact that it was uh, the Murdochs and News Corp coming come in to acquire you guys. T- tell us about that. How, how does something like that happen? And, and I suppose the, the learnings along the way of, of that type of uh, acquisition. Yeah, like I think anyone who starts out in, in startup, you know, that model that you have where you're down here and there's the flirtation period. And as you're going up the scale, you're trying to get into this go-go phase of, just rapid iteration you're finding your route to market and then you hit the adolescence period where you kind of having to do a rebirth and detach yourselves a little bit from the founders and what you're always looking for in this model is to hit prime and stay there because if you go past prime you're obviously on a debt spiral down the other side and I think anyone and Storyful was the same was always looking at right, if you're hitting prime and you're obviously trying to skip through adolescence quickly on that model what is your best route to market? How, what is your best route to scale? And I think, you know, Mark often reflects on it. The best option for Storyful at that time was to have a big brand, a big mothership come in behind you and open up more doors when it came to recruitment, when it came to partnerships, or else you're going on a big fundraise route. And sure. I always look back and I still feel that was the right decision for Storyful at that moment was acquisition because it did mean Storyful rapidly expanded in terms of talent around the world. Um, Storyful was able to keep its partnerships overnight and build and build beyond it. I think the challenge though for any startup when you do look at acquisition and come through it then is, is radical focus. You know, I think Storyful like any company that has probably come out the other side, you then realize we have to retain all of our partners We have to now execute on those ambitious forecasts. We also now have to serve our new mothership and make sure that they're happy. And so you're having to serve multiple people and and while building out new products and services. So how do you keep radical focus? And I, I know others have done research and theses and books built on this, and it's different for every company. And um, I think we probably, you know, found that hard in in the days after acquisition where, yeah, you've got talent and you've got partnerships. And how do you keep how do you keep creativity and yet radical focus and doing radical ruthless prioritization on we just need to do these three things rather than those 20 things. And I think that's really, really hard when you're the newly acquired startup in Dublin and having to serve so, so many masters. But you live and learn, you know, like, again, for Kinzen second time around, you get better this time around to going, don't boil the ocean, ruthless prioritization, win at this and then that. Yeah, it's interesting. Steve Jobs used to, to ask his senior executives, what did you say no to today? Yeah. Um, and that was one of his most powerful things that he instilled in people. Yeah. El- yeah. Is the power of elimination, the power of the no. And I think we all struggle with that. You know, yeah. we're, we're afraid to say no and the FOMO and the missed opportunities. And yeah, what does it look like if you say, I'm going to win at these three things this quarter and everything else can fall away. And this is where you get into your time management. I'm trying to get better. You know, your Eisenhower matrix of the urgent, important, the important, yeah. but not yeah. urgent. And then you have the stuff down here that is your delete column. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to get better every week. Okay, more stuff has to go and delete. I'm just saying no to it. And it's hard. It is. Yeah. 
it's clear on you, like startups are, you know, they're clearly in your blood. You wouldn't have gone a second time, you know, even now talking about a third time. Or whatever. Um, but what what's the biggest, I suppose, personal rewards or professional rewards for you? And then equally, what's the pieces of a startup that you struggle most with? Oh, look, love the people part. Yeah, finding that magic where, you know, I often think about to all of your different personalities and you can see okay, that person's a busy beaver. They're going to get stuff done. That person over there, they're your owl. They're like your data scientist. They're going to make decisions for you based on the numbers and keep you honest on that. Then you've got the people over here who are your dolphins, you know, your, your harmonizer, clarifiers. They're going to just bring people along with them. And then you've got your eagles and you need your eagles on your team who are creative and coming in with batshit crazy ideas. And I love when you're starting to figure that out And then you're starting to see the people who really understand the power of leadership. You know, they know the moments when they can be visionaries and then they know the moments that they have to be the coach. And then they know the moments where they have to be commanding of just do it. Mm -hmm. And when you start to see that come into play in a team like that, that's magic making. And, you know, for all of the resilience I've talked about today and how hard it is building a startup. The magic happens, though, in those lower moments, in those really tricky moments where you're on your plan D and you're looking at your cash flows. But it's only in the weeks and and months afterwards you go, those were the moments we made magic. And it's only when you come out the other side of a big, long recruitment campaign and you've done five rounds of interviews and gone through a thousand CVs. But you come out the other side and you've hired a superstar and you go, yeah, but the magic was there in the weeks of looking at the CVs and doing the interviews. So I love that part of it and knowing the magic is the people and, and putting that mm. all together. The part of it that I I find a huge distraction is just the fundraising piece of it. Um, because I, I think if you're a startup, you're always thinking about the product and how to ship the product and the done is better than perfect and hiring the team and doing the work and the fundraising feels like, well, that's just a thing we got to get through as opposed to it being the thing that really motivates you day to day. And thankfully, Mark takes on a lot of that. But when you are in that moment where you're pitching and you're putting together a list of dozens and dozens of VCs and angels and Mm. uh, grants and different equity blends, and you know at the start of a fundraise you are going to have to deal with rejection so many times. You're going to get so close to someone saying yes. And then you're going to have people you have to say no to. And it's a dance. It is a dance you dance for months and months. And the one thing that is, you're always kind of ambitious saying, oh, we'll do this in six months. And however long you think it's going to take, it will take twice as long. So it's out of your control. And it is this huge flirtation. I always liken it a little bit to, you know, the awkward teenage discos, nobody out in the dance floor and everybody's doing their chemistry check and everybody's sidling around the dance floor and everybody's there and you just need one person to take to the dance floor and everybody's going to follow. Fundraising is a little bit like that. There's these flirtations and there's chemistry checks and you have the little, you know, idle chit chat and then you just need one investor, take the floor and everybody else will match. But nobody wants to go first. This is always the problem with fundraisers. Uh, they, they will come and match but someone's got a lead and yeah. I find that really hard <laughs> and I, I think I'm a patient person but that stuff when it feels that it is a little bit out of your control there's a lack of transparency there's a lot of 
political gamesmanship I find that stuff hard that is the one yeah. part of startup life I would happily never have to do again if I never had to go near a pitch and fundraise yeah okay interesting do you feel that more needs to be done to support entrepreneurs and, and in particular then the female angle because you know there just are less female yeah. you know CEOs and founders and co-founders do you feel that more needs to be done Yeah. And look, I think we're lucky in this country. You've got a lot of access to funding when it comes to the seed stage. And probably then when you're in your late stage, you know, you're three million, five million plus fundraise. I do worry about a lot of companies who are in that early stage, you know, kind of in the middle there around the one million to three million. I think that's harder in this country Mm. at the moment. And therefore, if that's hard at the moment, and I know a lot of people who feel squeezed at the moment there, if that middle generation are finding it hard to fundraise at the moment, are we going to create a big pipeline problem up ahead that we're not going to have these late stage companies later on who are going to be huge when it comes to job creation, um, you know, foreign direct investment. And so I think when you look around at um, venture capital, um, thankfully because of, I think, our increasingly globalized world and, and the positive of a pandemic is that we feel more connected. Deals are getting done through Zoom. I think there's investors globally and VCs looking at Ireland that mightn't have looked at us two and a half years ago. So I think if you are a company in Ireland, you can go further now because Ireland is very small when it comes to your VC, angel, uh, your grants. Enterprise Ireland does a wonderful job, but it's still small. And so I do think we're more connected, which is great. The only downside of that is that it is cyclical. We've seen here in, in past boom to bust that if you are international and global, but then there is a cycle of everybody retrenching, do we have enough locally here in Europe and Ireland to sustain the ecosystem? And I would have a worry about that. And then when it comes to women, what was the last data? It was something like 94% um, of the funding distributed by VCs was to male-led companies. And, yeah, and that's not yeah. unique to Ireland. That is just, unfortunately, the pattern generally global. And that that does keep me awake at night a little bit yeah. of, one, that we don't have enough female-led companies and we can speculate as to all the reasons behind that. But two, even for the female-led companies getting themselves in front of the right pitches, they are looking at male-dominated VCs and boards. Mm. And then by extension of that, If you are dealing with male-led VCs who are investing in male-led companies, well, then if you are creating your boards, they are male-led boards because you're investors. And you start to see, you start to look at the whole design of it and you go, oh, yeah, there is our problem. And this is Mm. why we we end up with uh, advisory boards who are male-led as well. So we have a fundamental problem there. Now, do I think that the likes of Enterprise Ireland are doing a huge, honestly, I do think a really great job incentivizing more women in from the local enterprise offices going for growth yeah. in through enterprise. Yeah. like there is now a journey there is a pathway there for more women to come in not to have to give up necessarily the nine-to-five job that you can do it as well as passion projects at the start until you build a level of comfort so I think Enterprise Ireland local enterprise offices are doing a good job there would I like to see diversity targets though that like a VC if Enterprise Ireland is going to come in and match your funding that that VC should have a diversity target that says, right, Enterprise Ireland has now stipulated that 20% of your funding this year should go to a female-led uh, company and 
Enterprise Ireland will match where you are committing to that target. I think this is where we have great to idea. actually. Yeah, yeah, that is yeah. actually. And we have to, you know, back to very definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Well, right, what does it look like when we do quotas and targets? And like, then you can sunset them over time. Like if we start to hit 25%, 30%, 50%, then you go, actually, we don't need the diversity target. Like that'd be a great world to live in. Mm, but right now yeah, we're 94 yeah. percent of vc funding is going to male-led companies it's highly problematic given the society yeah. we live in where it is 50 50 yeah no 100 and going for growth you mentioned that like, i took part in that as well twice is a phenomenal yeah. a phenomenal support and just having other women around with with similar yeah. challenges you know you've been quoted as saying and it's so true it's lonely at the top like you mm. know being at the top it is lonely and i know you're an exec coach as well but what how do you get through that what supports if any do you find work for you when you are Uh, feeling isolated at the top like I so I think having those like-minded organizations so having your going for growth is really important there's another group called Awaken Hub that have come out of Derry another great network for women and you know increasingly you even see banks VCs legal firms more initiatives to bring women together but i will say with any of those initiatives the more that our male allies are in the room as well like we are going to only affect change there is absolutely a place where like-minded women should meet other women coach mentor sponsor 100 but we're only actually going to be able to to see the change that we need in the world if more men are in those rooms putting their hands up going okay next time i find myself in a boardroom with only men i am going to advocate for the women who aren't in the room where it happens so we have to get a better blend, I would suggest, with some of these networking um, opportunities and networks. Out, outside of that, like I am very lucky in that then I have um, male and female friends who I treat a little bit like accountability buddies who are holding me accountable to some of the things that I have said are the bigger mission and purpose in life. I have a coach. I've had a coach since, I would say, News Corp acquired Storyful. I've kept a coach ever since. Okay. I have an amazing wow. coach in Doreen Mulligan at the moment. And I recommend that for, for people all the time because you need a coach who's just going to question your answers. You need a mentor. And I have an, enough mentors, even my business partner, Mark, I would consider a mentor, someone who answers your questions. You need a sponsor in life, somebody that you trust when you are not in the room where it happens, that they are going to put their hands up and go, oh, and you can do that. So who is your sponsor? Mm. And I think often... We probably don't think about people in all of those different types of ways. So knowing who's your coach, who's your your mentor, um, who's your sponsor, and then who's just your accountability buddy? Who's that person who has permission to be in use once a month and come in and go, did you do that thing you said you were going to do, right? So the accountability buddy. And I've also found with women in particular is just finding the like-minded women and putting yourselves together in, in WhatsApp groups. I have two WhatsApp groups of women who during the pandemic came together out of two different problems we had identified. I won't get into what they are because hopefully it's going to bear fruit in in the months and and years to come. But it came from putting women together in two WhatsApp groups who had a shared sense of frustration and problem, but equally could see a solution. And it is just sometimes through simple acts like that of how do I put the right purposeful driven people together in a WhatsApp group? And finally, in terms of all of this, in terms of just your support mechanisms, is I am really lucky that I have a tribe of women in my mom, my sister, my aunts, my friends, 
who, you know, I have a little girl I'm trying to raise through all of this while um, running a business. And the older you get, the more vulnerable you have to be in going to your tribes of women and going, I need your help. Yeah. And I think yeah. if only we started more conversations sometimes that started with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, because we only, we sometimes like pride and ego in the way. And yeah, but I have great appreciation for my friends and family without them I couldn't do what I do every day and and it does it takes a village it takes a village when it comes to to say it yeah it doesn't matter if it's your daughter or your company and your team it takes all the sum of the parts yeah excellent your your influences uh, on you obviously you mentioned your your family and your your group of friends but you know you talk about higher power and higher influence it's, and and your why is you know very Simon Sinek like and and mm. obviously there's a number of those individuals that that people see very often is there anyone else I suppose in more mainstream um, influences on, on on your life Yeah, like I I go back to like many but. Someone like Maya Angelou has been a huge um, guiding light in my life. Like I would have done my thesis on her when I was in uh, St. Patrick's College of Education of someone who was a poet, an activist, a visionary, um, a do-gooder, had her failings, made her mistakes, but had an honesty and transparency around them. And what she tried to do all the time to convert her experiences into learnings for other people and education and form. So, God, I've, I could never, I'll never have the impact that someone like Maya Angelou has had, but I can play a small part day to day. And I just think she was a wonderful guiding light um, for, for women and women of, of um, diverse backgrounds and, um, you know, impoverished communities. So, yeah, she's been a wonderful influence. But I think, so you start with someone like her, a world impact. And then... I go back to like my fifth class teacher, Colette Daly, who I had for two years. And I, I was a fifth class teacher for two years and it was the hardest class uh, I ever had to go through. And I always felt if I can get through fifth class as a kid, I'll, I'll find my voice and I'll build my confidence. And I found fifth class really hard. And I've always been grateful that I had Colette, Mrs. Daly, because at that moment, and all of the research shows you this, that girls do start to suffer self-esteem issues. You're obviously going through lots of changes. Like it is just this massive transitionary moment in your life. But I had Colette who stuck with me on long division and long multiplication and your duck and all of your grammar rules around your Gaelica. And it was a hard year. And then I emerged into sixth class and I felt, honestly, I felt transformed. Now, after a year of grinding it out, and so I'm always grateful for people like her who stuck with, had faith and could see, yeah, with, with grinding it out and hard work, you're going to come through the other side. And I often come back because of Mrs. Daly and that year of grinding it out. You know, you go on a 750 kilometer cycle there three weeks ago from Malin to Mizzenhead and you come back to some of those fifth class mantras that you had of a kid of just grind it out, just trust, just one pedal at a time, you're going to get yeah. there. Wow, I can barely remember, barely remember school at all on you and you're pulling fifth <laughs> class out of it. Fair Very play good. to Miss Daly. Well done. Great. That's all I could say. Perfect. We'll move on to our rapid fire rounds and maybe, okay. yeah, so where we really get to, to know Anya Kerr. Let's kick it off. Best business book you have ever read? Um, can I do two? 
Go for yes. it. Okay, Clean Big by Tara Moore for any woman out there who's trying to kind of figure out what, how to listen to your inner mentor and try and kind of stop listening to your inner critic. So Clean Big, absolutely life-changing book. And the second one is The Messy Middle by Scott Belsky. So how do you endure those low points, optimize the highs, and just find your way through and trust in the process? I am getting on Amazon once we get off this. Very podcast. good. <laughs> uh, what podcasts are you listening to at the moment besides obviously this one? Uh, yeah, this is excellent. Um, so I go between like the New York Times Daily with Michael Barbaro. I love that for like taking one theme for maybe 15 minutes and going really deep and thoughtful into it. Um, I'm always listening to people like them, Brené Brown, you know, just in terms of um, self-improvement, a little bit of mindfulness and thoughtfulness and asking yourself hard questions. Then because of my feminist uh, credentials, you know, I'll listen back to Woman's Hour and just try to understand topical issues. How am I playing my part? You know, just holding myself accountable on that. And then I love Glennon Doyle. Uh, we can do hard things. Go back to one of those mantras from earlier, which is just back to that. Sometimes a little bit of self-compassion. We all need a reminder. We can all be just working so hard, doing the work and forgetting that, actually I need an energy transfusion and Glennon Doyle is a good reminder of we can do hard things but you have to do it in a way that's self-compassionate brilliant okay gonna check on that your, out out of interest you mentioned obviously podcast reading seems to be part of it as well is there a certain time, amount of time during the day that you, you you set aside for it or is it sporadic or yeah like I the, the team know I'm always talking about your your time on the balcony but that you have to book it off. So if you're down all the time in, in, in the trenches, in the weeds, that you forget to kind of come up for daylight, to get up onto a higher level, to look at what's happening in the landscape around you, doing a check on how much energy is in the tank, realizing, oh, I've forgotten to replenish my energies this week. And I replenish by, yeah, reading, listening to podcasts, going out, cycling, running. But you, I, I've realized through time, you have to actually book it onto your calendar. Yeah. So I call mine balcony. And balcony is often, I'm going to read that strategy paper, I'm going to read that uh, research that's come out or that chapter in a book. And But you have to book it in, otherwise it doesn't happen. Back to the ruthless prioritization, it falls off somewhere, it just gets downright. Yeah, and I think a, a common trend around entrepreneurs that we've had on the podcast is actually physically block booking time for exactly. self-reflection and improvement. Yeah, and, yeah. 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 B- busy times on the calendar, yeah. I need to get a separate home calendar clearly and, and start marking that <laughs> off and block booking that out as well. But anyway, uh, but I totally agree. You're right. Um, what is your one daily non-negotiable? Um, oh, a lot of coffee. <laughs> um, I think I'm probably back up to uh, seven coffees a day. I was definitely on 10 plus for a while. Um, that and exercise, I will say, I, I have to, every day I'll cycle, I'll go to the gym, I'll go for a run. I have to do something generally in the mornings as part of the recharge and then a lot of coffee okay very good and um, your pet peeves in business I won't, top name three. The, I, I won't name the bank I would just say generally <laughs> business banking is the bane of my life from different apps that you require for approvals to, to dealing with customer service um it, and and then you know you can have investors and you're looking for different plugins and they've never heard of it. So yeah, I, the amount of hours that I've lost through just sitting listening to banking music through the years. Yeah, 
Time loss. I'm never getting back. (laughs) Idea for your third startup, Anya, and Bowden, watch out. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. We'll have Anya singing instead of bad bank music. We'll have Anya serenading us. Uh, Um, And final question. Do you manage to switch off? And if so, how? Now, I know you've probably alluded to that already, but... Yeah, I do. And I, I would say story for where it probably was crazy and you were doing 14 hour days I'm not going to lie I do think second time around you are smarter with your time you're better at bookending your time you're better also and you feel responsible that you genuinely have to lead by example so I try to to demonstrate that I have multiple callings you know I'll do broadcast work I do a lot of mentoring coaching demonstrate that there are other ways of 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 putting energy in the tank and answering your calling but like, you know, I, I do my running, my cycling. I generally take my weekends off and I am accountable to that because if I don't lead by the doing, you are not going to create a culture where you actually have a, a family first culture and that people are staying for the long term. You don't want people burning out. Yeah. You want yeah. people buying into this vision. You've worked hard enough to recruit them in the first instance. So how are you going to operate a company in a way that people are going to be genuinely happy in work and happy at work? So I have to lead by doing and I'm very conscious of take the time off, be off. And so like we set rules. We we don't do emails really after six o'clock in the evening. Uh, Slack is the same weekends. It has to be an emergency. So like we have best practices. We have policies on this to kind of recognize you are separate from your team and company and take the time and take it so that you actually can come back recharged, replenished and ready to go another day. Yeah, it's true. Amazing. A very sincere thank you to Anya for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. What an exciting and innovative venture and one I think we're all going to watch with interest. This concludes another great episode of Phoenix Talent Talk Success Series podcast in partnership with The Business Post. As always, you can check out Phoenix and our Talent Talks Success Series podcast online across all usual social media and podcast channels. Mm-hmm.